Welcome to The Connection Project. Join hosts Lisa Bosman, Jen Verscher, and Emily Olson as we interview guests and discuss themes connecting us to well-being. Welcome to a very special bonus episode of the Connection Project podcast. I'm your host, Emily Olson, and you'll probably notice that today, Lisa Bosman and Jen Bersher are not part of the podcast. Uh, We are, as many of you are, um, in a very interesting time in this uh, coronavirus situation and self-isolating um our usual tuesday recording uh in on my dining room table with guests uh and multiple microphones and and the three of us hosting is is not happening right now so uh through the grace of technology um i'm able to continue following uh through on this passion and Lisa and Jen will be joining in on on future podcasts because it looks like it's going to be a a longer road than we had initially thought. And our way of life has definitely changed. Um, As this podcast uh, deals directly with discovering and researching and connecting and interviewing people about the subject and a topic close to my heart, well-being, um this has been quite quite the few weeks i must say and i've definitely experienced some challenges to my day-to-day practices and learning more about trusting trusting the process having patience with myself having off days and and allowing those off days to just be present, to be in the grief or the confusion or the sadness or the complete lack of what feels like any capacity to know how to parent. Um, And thinking, because we had several podcast episodes in the bag that would be good, but now realizing that's that's not going to be the case because this could definitely go on for months. And um, I definitely felt called to uh, reach out to our next guest, a friend of mine, John Kelman, who I met on a, an online mentorship group in 2018. And uh, we worked together in quite an intimate emotional setting for a period of six months. And we basically meditated uh, for an hour and then connected on this very platform zoom to delve into uh how we really saw ourselves and and found our place in the world and i'm just going to introduce him to you now um dr jonathan kalman is a licensed naturopathic medical doctor in the state of california he's dedicated his clinical practice to exclusively focus on regenerative medicine to provide his patients with a better quality of life. He's a member of the American Academy of Pain Management, and he's been volunteering with the medical team at the annual Burning Man event for the last 13 years and is currently a medical duty chief. 
which is absolutely fascinating. He likes to work also um, on medical teams at musical festivals throughout California. And he's working on finishing his first book. And I just really want to welcome you here to the show. Jonathan, my friend, uh, uh, an inspiration, really, you are. Um, welcome. Thank you. I appreciate that, Emily. I always, boy, if I can always have this kind of like glowing intro anytime <laughs> like a new patient shows up, that would be great. <laughs> kind of like going on a talk show and the, and the curtains open up and you get this incredible fanfare, like here he is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's good for the ego. <laughs> right. Which we know is not running the show anymore. <laughs> Right, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, it, it's something that uh, John and I actually delved into quite a bit in that in that group, uh, understanding the ego and and all of that. It's, and it's good to have a healthy dose of it too. John, I, I, the reason I was inspired to reach out to you was the other day I saw you post a video online, and that was coming uh, from your role as a practitioner. Um, and I found some of the things that you comment on on very intriguing but I guess first and foremost I'd love for you to elaborate on what it is that um, you are physically doing right now and where is your practice and are you um, are you working right now yeah I'm in I'm in San Diego California um, I have a private practice and so I work uh, as an independent contractor within uh, an umbrella of a company called Spark Health in Solana Beach. And so they have a handful of other uh, docs. And so the, the office is actually open right now. Um, medicine is considered one of the essential services. There's a, there was a question initially of like, what, how essential is essential um, right. versus things like doing dentistry or um, in, the, in the in case of pain management, I definitely can um, make an argument for that. Uh, I personally have been in um, sort of the self quarantine, self isolation. I mean, I'm fortunate. I'm in a I'm in an intentional community. There's four of us: my fiance and another couple. So we've had that to be able to work on as a couple versus folks who are kind of alone, like my brother, who's in a house by himself and. Uh, that's, we can ultimately dive down into the impacts of being uh, truly isolated versus being a community. But within my office, um, a lot of my work I felt wasn't completely essential. And so uh, I've, I've chosen to stay home and also uh, in honoring of the folks I live with. Um, occasionally I've done some uh, remote follow-ups, checking in on patients, um, but a lot of my treatments I didn't feel like ne were necessarily essential at the moment, and they could increase the risk uh, for potentially spreading disease uh, by having people exposed to the medical center. Um, the clinic being open, we do uh, offer a lot of intravenous therapies. So vitamin C, which is one of the things we talk about uh, on the critical care side is quite essential, but on a prevention side is important. So the, the clinic and the clinic owner uh, chose to stay open and continue offering those services. And those are still available. And so they're following all the current guidelines, um, pulsing patients, making sure they're actually not waiting in a waiting room, waiting in the car, and they can actually call and text to come in, having IVs separated rather than having to pack a room, um, masks and gowns, and they're checking temperatures of everybody coming in. Uh, the challenge, obviously, at this point is um, the asymptomatic nature of this illness mm. uh, with 
what are called the silent carriers. And that's what has been making this uh, illness so dramatically different than uh, anything we've seen in really decades um, and why the spread is such a concern. So, so that's where I'm currently at. I'm, I'm mostly self-quarantined at home, uh, but making myself available. And what's your, what's your understanding of uh, the virus itself in, in, in terms of pandemics? Yeah, this is, um, what's, what's interesting about this one is uh, the, the virility or infectious nature of it um, versus its um, uh, fatality or, or increased mortality. Um, there was, um, uh, you know, where was, um, let's see if I can remember it. There was this author, uh, oh, Matt Ridley. And he, he published a, um, an online article called like, is the coronavirus the wolf on the loose? Mm -hmm. And it was, it was referring to like, have we been crying wolf too many times? Right. Um, like who should we be listening to? There are people, if you open up Facebook or the news saying, why are we cracking down? This is crazy, right? You know, the, the, the head expert, Dr. Fauci says one thing, and then he says this over here, uh, you know, is this really a concern? And I think the challenge with, with Americans specifically is number one, this kind of independent nature of like, don't tell me what to do. Um, I've heard this all before, right? You told me this was a problem with SARS and MERS and bird flu and swine flu and Ebola and Zika and on, right? And it's like, wow, you cry wolf so many times, I don't believe you. And now all of a sudden it's like, okay, something's different here. And really what's happening is, again, this mutation, this novel, meaning this new version. I mean, coronaviruses have been with us um, for a long time. Common uh, head colds actually can be coronaviruses. This one is very... Uh, unique in the way it presents. And so compared to the lethality of say like SARS and MERS, which had 16 to 30% uh, fatality percentages, uh, this still has relatively high compared to flu of upwards of two, possibly 3%, depending on which country's data you're looking at. But the challenge here is though, is the infectious nature of it is that we have something that traditionally when someone gets sick, the reason why SARS was able to get stamped down so quickly uh, was partly because you can recognize these individuals very quickly and isolate them and get them out of the social system and into a hospital setting to protect society. And the challenge here is we have this really stealth virus that people are shedding. And, and now the research coming out of China, which is one of the first countries to see this explosion of it, there has been observations that it could be potentially up to 21 days now of viral shedding asymptomatically, which is incredible. So for three weeks, you know, people can be spreading this virus un unknowingly. And that's where the whole physical distancing comes in versus um, really using the term social distancing, mm -hmm. which I, I like the idea of encouraging using the words physical distancing versus social, because that makes it, again, there's this uh, dehumana, dehumanizing uh, right. kind of society. And, and really it's like, what we should be doing is building connections, even if it is remotely through Zoom. Um, and so anyway, so I'm encouraging people to use the term physical distancing. Um, but the thing about the infectious nature is why infectious nature of this is why is it more virulent? Um, to kind of explain it very simply here, um, we have these receptor cells in our body called ACE2 receptors. They're found everywhere. They're in the heart, they're in the lungs, they're in the digestive tract. 
Um, and what's unique about it is, uh, well, yeah, I, there's a part of me who's going to go down this 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 rabbit hole of technical descriptions, and I don't really want to yeah. quite describe that. So the the challenge here is that you could have both a lung infection or a digestive infection. For example, I had a family member just recently get released out of the hospital and he had, it was all digestive. Uh, he didn't have any lung problems, which, which is actually awesome because the lung infection is, is really the worst because that's where we're seeing people get the severe pneumonia and the water builds up. Um, and ultimately, if people die, it's because you're in essence drowning internally because mm -hmm. uh, you just can't transfer oxygen and CO2 effectively. And, um, but this virus can really just bounce uh, all over and, and infect. And one of the potential risk factors of what we're seeing is clearly age um, is a major risk factor. Um, people have pre existing illnesses, uh, uh, more uh, higher levels of comorbidities, as we call them in medicine. Um, so if you have hypertension, cardiovascular disease, um, if you're immunocompromised, like HIV, you've done chemo or doing chemo, if you're on uh, hydroxychloroquine, which is one of the drugs people may have heard of, um, people who have like rheumatoid arthritis or other autoimmune diseases have been taking hydroxychloroquine. And one of the reasons why it works is because it's an immune suppressive drug. And so if your immune system is already basically suppressed and not responding as well, now you become... Um, more susceptible basically to not being able to fight off other infections. If you have greater exposure, like medical workers, now you've got more virus basically being exposed. Uh, the other concern with these ACE2 receptors is this theoretical risk now of, again, the hypertensive picture. Patients who are on ACE inhibitors, thus the term, uh, the angio, um, excuse me, uh, and ARB, um, uh, angiotensin receptor blockers. So ACE and ARBs, which control blood pressure, um, those have been found to increase the number of these ACE2 receptors. And so right now there's some theoretical papers that have been published looking at that being a possible risk factor because now you've got more of these cells, these um, blocking key components that can be exposed to the virus versus people who don't. And then there's another paper that came out that said, well, this could be potentially protective. And I'm actually leaning towards the side of it not being protective because there's other research that looks at nitric oxide, which is a, a critical gas that helps with vasodilation. And one of the treatments, which they figured out back with SARS, was they were actually giving people uh, the gas, nitric oxide, inhaled. And they found that when those nitric oxide levels were increased, it reduced the ability of that coronavirus to actually bind to cells and to shed uh, um, the cells as well, or the shed, the, the viruses. And so knowing that and knowing what nitric oxide does to control hypertension, uh, the take home message for folks who are on these medications is not to just stop them. Uh, you need to obviously control currently the hypertension, but it's knowing that you're probably higher at risk. So following all of the requirements to That's really, right. uh, physically isolate and take care of yourself because you have the scientific plausibility of possibly being uh, more at risk. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that's and the other thing that actually just recently came out is even now looking at um, uh, from an immune system standpoint, people with allergies. Now that we're getting into the springtime here, um, there was a, a paper currently that just came out in the Journal of Allergy 
looking at birch pollen specifically, uh, but other things like ragweed. Uh, and again, I'll try not to get into the weeds too much here, but it has to do within our immune system. We have what's called a Th1 and a Th2 response system. Uh, Th1 traditionally is how your body responds to like viruses and bacteria. Th2 will uh, kick up immune cells that will respond to things like parasites and allergies. And the reason I bring this up is because this journal talked about how it's birch pollen basically will affect um, your, uh, it will trigger more of this Th2 response, right? Which is an allergy response, but it will downregulate your Th1, meaning your body will have a worse ability to respond to viruses and bacterial infections if you have severe allergies or seasonal allergies to things like birch pollen. And so what does this mean? You mean that you may mount less of a response to an infection. So if you have allergies, you may not produce a fever to SARS-CoV-2. So that's problematic because a fever is the body's natural response to infection to help fight off both, <clears throat> excuse me, viruses and um, uh, bacteria. And so now the idea is if you're not spiking a fever, now you become potentially now an asymptomatic carrier and you don't even realize it because of basically a comorbidity, a pre-existing condition. And um, you know, one of the things we can dive into in a little bit is talking about like a, what's a healthy microbiome uh, affecting this Th1, Th2. Um, but your original question was about the virility of it and really why is this thing um, so much more of a concern uh, than it, what it was. and um, and I think, oh, the other comment I just wanted to touch on, because there's, there's, there's been this sort of blow up I've seen about this uh, journal editorial that Dr. Fauci uh, released. And uh, uh, again, Dr. Fauci, uh, why should we should be listening to this guy? Um, well, again, he is the physician. He's a physician and he is the director of Nas the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. And he's been in that role for decades. He's actually advised six U.S. presidents. <clears throat> excuse me, through, um, you know, HIV AIDS crisis, SARS, MERS, bird flu, um, uh, swine flu, Ebola, Zika. So he's had a lot of experience. And so when he's not one to necessarily cry wolf and back at the end of February, he wrote an editorial, which is now uh, people are claiming like, see, this is why we shouldn't be locking down and crushing our economy. Right. He says this may be no worse than um, a very infectious kind of flu year. So let just people go out and get infected. Um, but as we learn more, even within a two week period, you're allowed to update your opinion. And what's That's challenging right. is people sort of take this statement like, hey, you published this in February 28th like that's what we're going with. It's like, no, that's not true. In, um, in what's called ICS command, which is what you do in like um, emergency situations, like a Burning Man in medicine, it's, it's an incident command system. <clears throat> and it allows for uh, changing your responses quickly relative to what is showing up. Right. And so you don't just say, I'm sticking with this and I'm not gonna change my opinion, even when you have fresh new data coming at you. And so the challenge is there are some people wanting to hold on to Dr. Fauci's initial editorial, and yet he's now recognizing that he wasn't necessarily wrong. He's re-advising based upon the data, and the data is showing that, yes, this is an incredibly virulent uh, virus, but that doesn't mean 
you're necessarily going to die from it. And that's the whole point of going into uh, what we're going to discuss a little bit about nutrition and health, which is what could potentially make yourself more resilient. So even mm-hmm. if you do get infected, not everybody dies. And what is it that would make someone potentially more resilient to just getting infected, getting through it, and then producing antibodies and hopefully making yourself immune, um, which is actually one of the therapies we're now currently looking at. And there was a gentleman here in Escondido who was infected, built antibodies. Um, he donated his blood plasma recently, and they've already treated <clears throat> three patients, um, critical patients, with his blood plasma. And it's already showing signs that uh, the patients are responding positively because they're being introduced to the antibodies that were produced from another human who had already had the infection. So, <clears throat> so the yeah, moment you know, yeah. Well, I might end up needing to get some water because <laughs> no worries. Being hydrated can. is definitely yeah. uh, job number yeah. one. When uh, absolutely, in order I've to got some illness. water here because I I know myself. I just wanted to go back to a couple of things you said. So uh, first of all, I'm here in British Columbia, and um, Dr. Bonnie Henry is the provincial health health officer for British Columbia. And <laughs> one of the things that's really become uh, apparent to me is that her becoming a household name and, and becoming uh, a person who uh, people can turn to um, and overly repeating the message of what to do, it, it starts to become ingrained. And I wholeheartedly believe with you, uh, agree with you that um, I, I think we're growing as a society too. You know, my husband is uh, provincial politician. And, um, you know, I'm up here in my bedroom, he's downstairs, uh, working from the dining room table, we have a, um, a smaller house and two kids. And so, you know, we're making it work as best we can. Um, but one thing I think is really important is as we learn and, and start to ingrain um, the new knowledge as it comes in, we, we find that ability to, I, I feel like I saw a shadow just dropping some water off for you there. <laughs> That's awesome. Good fiance. She's a keeper. You should marry her. <laughs> um, is allowing people that are in these positions uh, that are communicating this information to us to not only change their mind, but to, to change their message, to update it, like as you said. And, and I think it's uh, really good that we're starting to learn our own uh, uh, difficulties with, with adapting, right? We're all adapting, right. we're adapting together and there's different levels of vibration and, and what matters to us. Uh, well-being is huge for me. And one of the things uh, in sort of the work I've done over the past few years uh, around well-being, specifically mental health, is um, noting how much isolation plays a role in that. So I did want to um, expand the conversation into, you know, John the person, what are things that that allow you to be well? What are, what are some things in your, your practice, not your medical practice, but your day-to-day practice that, that give you that ability to focus on that as well as whatever um, vitamins and, and therapies and uh, naturopathic um, practices that you have? 
just curious. There is, um, in psychology, there's uh, this concept called resilience therapy or resilience theory. Um, and it is very much the mind-body uh, piece of being able to um, get through and tackle what seems like incredibly stressful uh, or overwhelming circumstances and recognizing that like panic and fear um, does not uh, encourage that and and working in sort of uh, festival medicine and acute care which is a really emergency medicine so to speak there was there's there's never really a panic per se there's sort of a very focused agenda that you can work rapidly, but not in a panicked way, because panic doesn't serve anybody. And so those experiences have just have continuously or really kind of ingrained that um, what is really the worst case scenario. And there are times where I've literally coached other volunteers and they're like, wow, what if this happens? What if this happens? You know, they're just showing up at this event like Burning Man and they're like, like, what, like, what do we do if this happens? And, and sometimes my advice was like, listen, worst case scenario, you may be doing CPR on somebody. And, and what does that mean? Well, you know how to do it. And so you just go do it. And there's also an aspect of knowing that you've got support, that there are people that you can rely on that are going to back you up during these scenarios as well. And, uh, in that situation, you know you've got someone on your side. You're you're trained to do what you're going to do. Uh, the challenge when you're sort of socially isolated, um, you're you're sort of at the mercy of letting your mind be incredibly influenced by whatever you're going to allow yourself to be bombarded with. So depending on which channel you turn into or which Facebook feed you want to listen to, um, you could be highly influenced by swinging one direction or the other and times like this is really kind of challenging uh, i think people's belief systems and you can sort of watch the direction that people are going to go and i think facebook has always been for me kind of a um it's like keeping the finger on the pulse of mental illness and seeing the direction people are going like um when when i see people say things like even outside of this pandemic like kind of freak out posts like I'm done I'm taking a break I'm going to be off for 6 months no more of this it's like you're freaking out and allowing literally a web page to fire you up on such a level that you need to step away versus you have a remote control like on a television just turn it off like what is it about the psyche that you are so challenged that you can't just see a post of people that you called friends you've accepted that their feed is setting you off so distinctly. And so there's an aspect of not shunning those individuals, but recognizing that like these are times to really reach out to these people and, and check in and make sure they're doing well. And, and you're going to see the folks who, who post things like, Man, I can't stand waiting online at the gun shop for my ammunition that I'm stocking up on. And it's like, that's funny. Like, why do you feel the need to stock up on ammunition and firearms? Like, have you believed the movies you've been watching and the television shows about that's how you need to reach out to humanity? 
um, on another podcast, I mean, I was joking, but sort of being real about like humanize your neighbors. Like I know my neighbors, I know their names. Like I can go see Mary, who's this wonderful elderly woman who's got a beautiful lemon tree, right? And I go up and I get lemons from Mary. And, you know, I know Mike and his dog and my dog play. And so like, Mary's not going to shoot me. I don't want to shoot Mary. Like, like, where does that feeling yeah. come from that someone is going to harm me and want to, they're going to want to take my toilet paper, right? I need to hoard. And when you begin to know your neighbors and form relationships, that's community. And then the community will reach out and support each other. And my, the fear I have is really coming out of this and nothing changing for people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I wouldn't even say it's a fear because again, I just, it, it's not, it's, it's more of a, my concern. My good concern here is will people truly look inward and begin to make the changes? I mean, there are huge global conversations that are happening and need to happen. Everything from um, healthcare and what does that look like in terms of like single payer systems in uni- universal healthcare? Because um, as people are getting knocked off employment, uh, they're losing their healthcare because of the way the system works in the United States. <clears throat> when you do have healthcare, what the heck does that even mean? Uh, most people have such high deductible plans that it's not even really a healthcare plan. It's just mm-hmm. enough not to bankrupt the average person. Um, but you still don't have care because you're still paying out of pocket. There's big picture discussions around animal husbandry and how this thing even started. How are we treating animals? Um, I know China um, finally decided to start banning uh, marketplace sales of wild animals because of this. There are some pocket regions um, that have decided to ban uh, the sale and uh, use of uh, meat from dogs and cats, for example. And so there's now social changes occurring. And so these are big picture things about, um, you know, really evaluating our society and how we've chosen to operate leading to this point. Um, Yeah. Uh, I got you. It's interesting (laughs) that you tapped in on that because that was sort of where my my questions were going to go. Those are really great. points that you have about about Facebook and social media. Um, What I've experienced personally is, uh, you know, I I try to go on as little as possible, but I did for the first couple of weeks of the um, self-isolating. I put the app of Facebook back on my phone because I wanted to know. I wanted to to feel some form of... um, connection usually I only go on, on my computer once in a while but I was like well this is how I'm going to be able to connect with people to start um, and I don't know how algorithms work but I was just getting so many feeds about the explosion of creativity that was happening yeah. through my friends and mentors and um, you know checking in with the news and, and the prime minister goes live every day um, our healthcare system is amazing. One of the things that's come out of this that I love is um, people banging pots and pans every night at seven o'clock for shift change uh, yeah. for healthcare workers and and frontline workers. The you can um, hear that in our neighborhood. People will do oh, that awesome. as just a, a community kind of awareness. Yeah. You'll hear that sound. Yeah. 
Oh, and it's, it kind of, yeah, like I get choked up. Um, uh, my, my sister is the healthcare manager for a community I live in. Um, she's uh, the nursing manager and health manager. You know, my mom works in the healthcare system. She's feet away from a testing site. There's a drive in healthcare workers that I've seen on a more uh, grander scale that I was already aware of to one level, but there was definitely a, a greater awareness of just how much um, those professionals care, um, you know, fire, police, ambulance, all of that. And it's just been really beautiful to watch. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a mother and um, some of the conversations that have come up even within our home, I mean, we already talk about a lot of stuff around well-being mm -hmm. and and are in a continual space of learning about what it means to be healthy and, and happy and joyful and things like that and and also building resiliency and and understanding and having compassion for one another and so we kind of check in with each other and some days are easier than others um, but it is coming to the realization that there's a, a long journey ahead of us and, and what's that going to look like? And there was a moment the other night where my uh, husband said, I want to remember these special times that we're getting to have with one another, just the time together, how amazing that is. And there was this little pang inside of me that was like, I don't want to lose it. Like, I don't want you to go back to work. Your days are so long. I miss you. <laughs> and it's like, I've been reminded of the deep connection that him and I have, you know, um, in a week or so, we would have known each other for 17 years. So congratulations. Um, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And also relearning relationships mm -hmm. in, in my small family. Oh, we, we, we get along. We actually like each other. This isn't so bad. You know, we got this. We're in a really beautiful situation. Uh, we live in a first nations community and, mm -hmm. Um, so we know a lot of our neighbors cause they're all, uh, pretty darn close relatives or, or major families. And, uh, it's a smaller community. My daughter goes to the, um, the local school and she's in the immersion program with the Sinchothan language and we live by the ocean. It's like, we are so blessed. My husband's sister lives at the front of the property and she just happened to marry my brother <laughs> So we have this like beautiful situation. My, my adopted brother is in one cabin, my sister-in-law and brother are in another house. So we have people to be around and we can be in the yard. Um, my husband and, and my brother are, have started a bocce tournament and they've trained themselves how to do broadcasting from multiple cameras. And they've got this, like the creativity is just exploding, right? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And so I, I'm curious, you did touch on that on your video that I saw online. What, what specifically to you has emerged creatively in this time so far? Well, what's, um, you know, as you, as you mentioned in my, um, in my bio that I, I've been working, I've been working with the medical team at, at Burning Man uh, for 13 years. And uh, there, there's something uh, very unique, creative, transformational about uh, that event 
and uh, it's been uh, there's always been this uh, working 10 principles uh, that they've always um, acted upon. And, you know, those, those 10 principles basically were radical inclusion, uh, gifting, decommodification, radical self-reliance, radical self-expression, uh, communal effort, civic responsibility, leave no trace, participation, and immediacy. And... Um, like my house, uh, my household, we were kind of joking the other day. It's like, wow, we feel like we're kind of starting to experience like Burning Man all around us. Well, for one, everyone's walking around wearing masks and out in the desert during this event, everyone's wearing masks, number <laughs> okay. one, because there's like dust storms everywhere. But when it comes to kind of the decommodification, the gifting, um, the, the radical self-expression, like we're seeing it every day. I mean, uh, there's just these amazing like solo concerts. Um, these musicians are getting online and doing awesome Zoom calls, um, these ecstatic dances that are being hosted. The other night, it was like 58 people uh, from all over on Zoom doing ecstatic dance. Uh, there was another group doing flow arts, which is everything from like juggling to fire and poi. And they would go from one person to the next in various states. And everyone would get to watch and they would then have a, a DJ performing off of one website that everyone can hear. And then on Zoom, you'd get to watch these performances. The gifting of uh, coursework and knowledge is just I, I just exploding everywhere. Um, it's also uh, the explosion of uh, explore to exploring um, solutions and answers. Like I just read a beautiful article about a group, a, um, I don't know, what do you call them? Like a sewing, um, it's a warehouse that sews. Um, there's a term for what they, anyways, they do. Yeah, I don't know. Custom stitch. Um, there's a word for it. I can't figure yeah. it out. But but anyways, they they began investigating because obviously you know about uh, issues around masks and availability, and they were like, we can clearly come up with a solution here. So they first started experimenting with a lot of the models that the internet was releasing, like how to sew a mask. Mm -hmm. And they said, okay, this this is okay, but we need to fix this. It needs to seal better based upon what were considered like OSHA standards. Um, and then they said, well, wait a second, we need to filter because an N95 mask specifically is rated and tested to filter down below a micron uh, in thickness, which is the whole point of it being safe to filter out viruses. And what was so unique, and the reason I'm bringing this up is the creativity where they went out and bought this $1,500 uh, medical, not a medical, a lab device to measure particulates. And again, this is a place that just sews things. And they were like, okay, we're going to do this. And they began experimenting with various um, materials, everything from um, vacuum cleaner bags to shop towels. And what they found was when they found uh, two brands specifically of those blue shop towels, which uses this uh, hydroformed polyester, and they crisscrossed the uh, two shop towels and stitch them into their masks, they were able to get filtration rates that were almost as good as an N95 mask, oh, wow. which is, which is incredible. Like that was just ingenious. And it was just out of sheer just will because the community said, we need help. Our medical professionals don't have access. And now the state of California uh, has now been saying the public, when you go out needs to be wearing, facial coverings. And mm -hmm. I know for a long time, I think the fear had been if 
the government says everyone should wear it, they go back into we're taking masks away from health professionals if now you're telling the public. And so there was a concern of, well, when do we tell them to wear it? Or maybe we just tell them to wear the bandanas so our medical professionals can have the N95s. Mm-hmm. And so the answer to your question is, well, great, Here, here's the ingenuity, here's the excitement of people coming up with, with answers. Um, you know, Elon Musk of Tesla, um, besides just buying other equipment, you know, the, his engineers are now taking their existing equipment that they build automobiles with and have now designed a functional respirator um, and are looking to now be able to build very rapidly scale up using existing automotive parts Mm. that they already have been building for their model threes and creating um, basically respirators. And and this is the kind of stuff that uh, would happen back in world wars where basically, you know, manufacturing companies would step up to build other equipment other than their normal stuff in times of need and challenge. And, uh, and so that's, that's what I see happening. And that's what I like to focus on is, is the creativity, the gifting, um, the, the sharing of advice. I mean, even the fact that I'm doing this, you know, my first, um, that, that Facebook live that you're referencing really came out of, uh, being challenged. Um, uh, a good friend of mine who's in, uh, this community that we participated in, I had a long call with him and it was about looking at what, what do I need to do for myself to really grow and expand? And it was very easy for me to, to go run out and go volunteer and help with these various organizations that I normally would help with. And that was too easy. I would give it myself potentially to the point of sheer exhaustion because Mm -hmm. it was so easy to do. And he's like, what's, and we have this this term called like finding your edge. And when you find your edge and you push up against that, that's where the growth and expansion comes from. And so as we began talking and him knowing me so well, he's like, he's like, that's easy. You know, you, you, you throwing yourself out of an airplane and skydiving is easy. That doesn't, that doesn't scare you. Racing a motorcycle doesn't scare you. Like there aren't too many things that scare you. So what's your edge? And at the end of this two hour call, he's like, he identified, he's like, you know, your edges, it's sharing what's in your head. It's sharing your knowledge, but it's not just that. And that's when he's like, it's about sharing it live. And he goes, so my challenge to you is to do a Facebook live and to share your knowledge and then see what happens. And that's, (laughs) I love when it. it gets edgy. And so that's actually where that first Facebook live came from, because, you know, my community was accusing me of being stingy, being stingy with my knowledge. Mm. And so the edge was step up and share what's in your brain, the uniqueness of how you share it. Cause a lot of the ideas aren't necessarily new, unique, and different, but again, it's all about how people choose to hear something. And so mm. For some, the messenger gets in the way of the message. So if someone else can regurgitate and share the message in a new and different way so it can be heard, that ultimately is sharing that same gift. And what came out of it was all of a sudden invitations to begin sharing more knowledge. I love and it. Yeah. Someone like Emily reaching out to me and <laughs> saying, hey, how would you like to come on this podcast because of... Um, what potentially I have to share and the way I potentially can share it. And, and, and that's something that I think 
everyone else can sort of um, really kind of meditate on, which is what is your edge? Like, what are you being pushed to do right now? You know, do you find yourself going into those dark spaces? It's not running from that. Um, we, we have a couple in our community who run the Light Dark Institute and they're, everything they do is about actually running towards the dark and investigating what's there and what magic can come out of looking at that dark, that darkness and, and not always feeling like you're going, Oh, I always have to be in the light and I have to be always positive. It's like, no, you have to have contrast in life. And that contrast and the learning comes from understanding that um, we all have kind of those, that darkness and those dark thoughts. And it's like, what can we learn from that? Um, and meditation can absolutely uh, help with that for sure. And so that was my edge. And so I keep pushing up against that edge. And um, you don't always know what's going to it, what's the answer. But the idea is that as a human being, and if your edge is talking to your neighbors, well, maybe actually go talk to your neighbor and find out what name <laughs> like what do they do like like who are they what's their gift um, yeah. why should you um why should you give a damn about them like find out uh, yeah wow yeah darkness has been one of my greatest teachers and the more i go into the dark the lighter my life has been um it, and it's ironic but the contrast for me has been um the teacher right and the darkness has brought uh opportunities and relationships i was just grinning ear to ear when you were telling me about you know i i picked up on the energy that came out from you doing that facebook live for you pushing your edge and it and it called to question <laughs> what is my edge yeah what is my edge right now um and i'm gonna sit with that i'm gonna sit with that i I find it difficult to promote my knowledge. I find that very difficult. Yeah. Um, you know, I launched my website recently and I just kind of slipped it under the radar, threw it out there and mm -hmm. um, did a quick Facebook post. And, um, you know, it quieted, quieted down really quickly. And I thought, whew, <laughs> got that over with, right? Um, See, but right when there, it comes you're already, to, you're yeah, already starting to <laughs> delve into sense that. Of, yeah. But if I can turn the focus onto helping others, that's where I, I find my true passion. That's where I, that's why this podcast even happens because I want to expose people to these incredible friends and, and uh, acquaintances that I have met in my lifetime that have deep knowledge. And mm -hmm. I feel that connection, the word connection itself was what healed my uh, deep dark mental health struggles for many many years of my life because i i would just isolate 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 i wouldn't share who i was with the world so i had to put myself out there now i've been doing that for a while so that's a practice and i know what it feels like and when i'm in flow and working with groups whether it be workshops or podcast or um any environment that is sharing information that's where that's where I glean my own personal joy from. What's my edge right now in, in this uh, time with the coronavirus? I'm not sure. And maybe it's helping myself a little more. 
Maybe it's uh, caring for myself. It was interesting. I've started walking every day. I did about 12K yesterday. My dog loves it. Um, and it, it's really beautiful witnessing people being so respectful, crossing the street. You know, I'll, I'll move out of the way most of the time um, first. Um, but the transition, I mean, once we know better, we do better. So maybe soon everybody will be, that's out even that our physical distancing will be still be wearing masks. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but the, that whole thing of if the plane is going down, you got to put the mask on first so that you can help others. And what's been coming up for me these past few weeks, just in various scenarios is realizing how often I don't look after myself and burn myself out. Like what you're saying with, the volunteering that you do yeah um and so now i'm learning about how to do that and i feel that i can show up more fully for the work that i do do with others um there's still times where i question what i'm doing i, I question is this enough is this helping uh what am i offering anyway um so yesterday i got an email from um my mother-in-law's uh, husband who actually has the coronavirus and he has been and will be in isolation and quarantine for quite some time. Um, beautiful human being. And, you know, you never want your loved ones to actually get it, but it did kind of bring a reality to the situation that, that allowed for a lot of people in our greater community to go, to go okay, we've got to be really careful and, and thoughtful of one another. But uh, he sent me a link to a course that Yale is offering for free. There's one I, I paid to get this certificate one. So I'm going to be doing a course about well-being and looking through the, the curriculum and, and the syllabus. It was just so neat to go, okay, what, where I have been feeling I have had lack in terms of the subject of well-being outside of just my own experience, how can I bring in more? My friends tease me that I'm an Akashic record keeper because I'm always gathering knowledge. I'm always making note, multitasking all of this stuff. This course, I'm really excited to delve into it tomorrow because it, it will empower me to bring more uh, uh, expanded various um, knowledge to to the work that I do in my weekly circle, which has turned into an online thing, which was totally unexpected. It's like, mm -hmm. I'm all about connection, yet here we can't actually be physically together, but there is still the possibility to connect even through, um, you know, these video calls. So absolutely. So, um, John, what, what are some kind of lingering things that you feel that you're really passionate about, like right now, these past few weeks that are inside you that you're not talking about? Would you be willing to delve into one of those right now? Something that's simmering, that's not perfect yet? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 probably the probably the thing that has been probably one of my strongest Achilles heels is is actually the book. Um, the book has been over 10 years in the making. Well, shoot, longer than that. It actually came to me back when I was in school. So 
Um, I've been out practicing for like 16 years. So really this book should have come out 16 years ago. Um, and, uh, and again, it was really that kind of based on that, that, that fear, that fear of like, well, what would people think, um, uh, being shamed for it or what if it was wrong? And what's ironic about that whole feeling is well, let me step back and I'll, it, it will make more sense. Um, so, so, so the working title is basically meat, meat, not right. And it has to do with diets or, um, or paleo or anything like that. It's actually re referencing acronyms. And in medicine, most people have heard the term rice therapy. It stands for rest, ice, compression, elevation. And, uh, that, that acronym was started in 1978 and, it was an orthopedic doc named Dr. Merkin who basically wrote a book, um, an orthopedic textbook, and came up with this theory. And he just said, rice therapy. It sounded great. And he goes, people should do this for injuries. And there was no research, no evidence. It literally was a theory he had, uh, wrote it in a book. And at the time, you know, books uh, held um, a lot of value. Uh, today, um, Print material doesn't seem to hold value. A lot of people take their value from uh, sort of social media, right? Um, the idea of what is real evidence, what is fact, um, what is true fact, it's sort of become this kind of moving target, right? But at the time in the 70s, like you published a book that was fact. And so all of a sudden this rice there became adopted as fact. And today, if you ask almost anybody, and they say, oh, I just hurt myself. They're like, oh, rice it. Go put a bag of ice on it and rest. And then you just go, well, why? You understand why? And no one will be able to answer the question. Even medical professionals. When I was looking for some office space a while back, I would look at some physical therapy offices and I'd ask them. They do some amazing work with, with clients. And then they would just throw a big bag of ice on the area they just have. And I go, why are you doing that? I go, protocol. Right. But why are you doing that? And so when I was in school, you know, like your brain is highly active. You're looking and you're inundated with data from all directions. And basic physiology kept telling me this was so illogical. It didn't make any sense. And so that was the starting point. And then from there, it's like you start digging up research papers, published evidence that says this doesn't make sense when you apply rest, ice, compression, elevation. And so for years, it kept kind of like brewing and steaming like, wow, okay, I, I, I have this evidence. I have the evidence showing, saying the opposite, that we shouldn't be doing rice. So why should I be fearful of sharing this evidence, right? And um, God, I think, was it been at least five, six years, maybe over five years now, Dr. Merkin um, uh, came out with his mea culpa. I mean, for me, that was groundbreaking for someone to kind of admit fault. Um, and not necessarily fault, but just saying, hey, listen, like this was a theory I came up with. And so for me to come up with a book called Meat Not Rice, meat being a, a new and different acronym uh, to deal with uh, health and healing. Like why now all of a sudden would I have fear releasing this information? The whole point behind it is to start a new discussion. The new discussion is like, do we need to change the way we sing that? medicine traditionally has been really slow to evolve and, and change uh, despite sometimes overwhelming evidence to the contrary. And so today we still have lots of procedures we do 
that really don't have a lot of good evidence backing it up. But mm -hmm. again, we don't really change very quickly. So, so for me, this, this, this edginess of releasing this information, uh, knowing that like I have data to back up what I want to say, um, to reduce the, the kind of backlash of, of me releasing this information, um, you know, it's it's definitely been that struggle to go back to your question. I mean, again, this has literally been aching for 16 years. I've um, you want to talk about being with your uh, gifts? Like, how about back your gift for 16 years? Um, yeah, right. And, and maybe it's just ego talking, like uh, this my book, like you know, this transformational. It could just piece of crap. Who knows? I mean, so what know, does MEAT stand for? What's the acronym? Uh, the working, it may change slightly, but it, it's referring to movement, exercises, analgesics, and therapies. And what it's referring to, um, in contrast to rest, ice, compression, elevation, is that with most injuries, if you continue moving or, and or doing therapeutic exercises immediately after an injury that isn't like a fracture, that isn't something that you need to actually go and get a cast on. We're talking about like soft tissue injuries. Mm. Um, the evidence shows us that increasing blood flow, moving lymph fluid, and moving veins and muscles is really the best way to help recover and heal. The challenge is then there's a pain response, which then inhibits people from, and so analgesics has to do with using substances that can help modify pain response to allow you to continue moving and exercising. The challenge there, and this is another kind of addendum to the book, is actually looking at uh, the epidemiologic data of what have NSAIDs been doing to our society and, in my opinion, have been basically um, hastening kind of tissue destruction and encouraging so much of this, uh, these chronic pain syndromes that uh, we see now um, because NSAIDs are so readily taken and NSAIDs just as a side note, I mean, they, they block critical pathways, these COX, COX called COX pathways. Um, For the lay crucial. person, what is an NSAID? Could you give an example of one? Yeah, so that's like ibuprofen. Um, Got it. And ibuprofen being one of the most common, uh, people pop them like Tic Tacs, right? They're like, uh, you can buy them anywhere over the counter. You can go into a, a fast food, like a 7-Eleven. Um, I don't know if you have 7-Elevens in Yeah, Canada, we do. Yeah, we do. Okay. I think they're right, all... They don't exist really as much anymore, but I haven't seen one in a while, but they did, yeah. yeah. And so the point being is like, you know, NSAIDs, um, like aspirin, ibuprofen are so readily available. And there's this idea that like, oh, it's completely safe and you just take it for pain. And and the reality is we are beginning to learn so much about the impact of what these NSAIDs can do. Um, and I deal with a lot of men's health issues and, and NSAIDs have been found to actually suppress testosterone production. So going beyond just sort of a, a physical ailment issue, but, but back to the acronym specifically, um, again, it's looking at other analgesics. Um, like we obviously, we see a movement now here in the United States and I know Canada too, like for example, using uh, medical marijuana uh, to modulate uh, pain response. And for example, that's one uh, tool that's not an NSAID, using acupuncture to modify pain. There are herbal formulas that can modify pain without suppressing this COX pathway, which is crucial for your cells to heal. And then the T, part of me, uh, the treatments or therapies, 
um, are a lot of the things that I do in my practice. It's using regenerative techniques to encourage the remodeling and healing of connective tissue. Mm. And so, so much of the acronym is basically counter. It's the opposite of the original rice therapy. So the evidence that was saying that when you suppress when you put a lot of cold and you constrict blood vessels and blood flow, you immobilize a joint, you don't exercise and move. Um, the evidence was telling us that that actually leads to chronic um, connective tissue problems and increased pain and decreased mobility and range of motion. Mm. So the answer then becomes doing the opposite. And now we're starting to get more evidence published about what that looks like when you begin um, moving immediately afterwards from an injury and uh, the speed of healing of tissue. And, and so that's, that's kind of really the, the, what meat, not rice stood for. And, and what I was initially, there was this feeling inside of me of like, sort of this frustration, this anger of like, Oh, people need to know, like, we've been believing this, this crap for so long. I can't believe Merkin put this out. And the reality was, he was doing his best at the time to come up and try to find solutions. And, and so rather than coming from like this antagonistic place, I recognized that what I really wanted to share was just the knowledge of this, to create a conversation around mm -hmm. why are we not discussing the evidence? Like we have this published evidence. We need to be starting these conversations to really start to affect um basically health and healing and well-being in this country because you know back in the day when i grew up it's like you know when you heard about joint replacements those were for 70 plus year olds and now all of a sudden like i'm in my 40s and 40 year olds are getting joint replacements to me there's that should be like a red flag going wait a second something is wrong like why why are 40 year olds having um, having to get a joint replaced at such a young age and um, wow. again, that's, that's delving into really looking at what have we been doing as a, as a society, how we've been treating our bodies um, to be having uh, such destruction at such an early age. So two things. Uh, I want to mirror back to you the, the compassion you were just expressing about Dr. Merkin and, and your immediate reaction um, upon learning the things that you did in school and realizing, mm -hmm. hey, we need to get this message out and, and maybe, you know, mirroring it back to yourself, to you in this moment to say, maybe there was some learning that needed to take place before you had this, this resolve and this sort of um, confidence about what you wanted to put into your book. And, you know, I want to maybe just challenge you a little bit to include this conversational piece that you've been sharing today about your hesitancy to um, to share that knowledge in the way that you were sharing it just now mm -hmm. because I think the the human connection piece is when people can relate like yeah I'm, I'm sure it'll be a very um, technical science-based book but when when people can experience it through you, particularly like offer yourself into the book not not just that like I feel like there's such benefit there so I just wanted to maybe have you consider that a little bit um, because I know for myself when I learn if I learn um, in a way that I also get to incorporate 
where the message is coming from and feel the passion behind it from the person who is creating that um, book, uh, course, experience, teaching, knowledge, whatever, um, it's far more relatable and, and it resonates on a deeper level. Secondly, sure. yeah, and secondly, um, it, it's really interesting what you're talking about with the ibuprofen and things like that. And I, I will say guilty as charged. Um, one of my uh, main, I guess, New Year's resolutions this year, not that I ever really make them, um, was to listen to my body. And literally the day before we went into isolation, I discovered a osteopathic practitioner and I spent two hours with him and it was as if a portal of possibility opened up for the first time in my life. And first of all, I had to address in that moment that there was some damage done and not from a place of needing to feel shame about it or guilt about it, but that there was an awareness that came to me about the damage I had done to my lever because of um, the ibuprofen to deal with pain that came from with my mental health taking Prozac for over 10 years and what those toxins were doing to my body that I needed to then medicate pain, you know, to have pain suppression pills to cope. So it was like, I started to see my world open up in terms of, why am I experiencing this pain? Where's it coming from? And what is the truth of the pain? Um, so, you know, from the position of the whole self, and it's really interesting that the mind was playing tricks on me for so many years, and it, and it terrified me. And the medicine at the time prescribed by my doctor was, um, you know, Prozac. And then, so I took that for a long time. And then when I got to a place of actually being able to do something about my situation, um, it felt right for me personally to go off those, but the damage that I believe, or, or the, the problems that it caused with toxicity within my, um, organs created pain that, disguised itself so well I couldn't get to the root cause of it for a really long time and I think just the mental and emotional and spiritual decision I made this year to say I'm going to listen to my body because it knows I thought I needed ironically I'm 40 well 41 almost 42 a hip replacement I thought my hip was broken and I had one treatment a few weeks ago of I don't know what it was called, but it was kind of like a manipulation of how my liver and my gallbladder and my organs were all twisted and bounded up, mm-hmm. literally and probably figuratively too. And they, he did this gentle thing and he says, I'm just going to suggest to your body what it already knows and has the innate wisdom mm-hmm. to do. And it was like a combination of like psycho PMS and like rage that came out for the next few days. So we're going to ease back on the treatment next time I see him, which may be months from now, but the toxins that were released within that one session were literally the pain in my hip. Like it, Mm. it blew my mind. I thought it was a bone or a structural thing or possibly a cancer. 
And ironically, it, it's not. And so there's, there's so much knowledge and, and wisdom um, that is there and can be addressed by these people that carry this wisdom from all their years of schooling. And it's, and it's reaching out and finding those ways to, to find the truth that is there for my body, from right. what my pain was trying to tell me, from what my experience had to show me. Um, now that could all be a load of BS and that, that the, um, that the Prozac didn't cause that, but that's how I've understood it right now. And until I know differently, that's, that's how I'm going to kind of embrace it and, and show love to myself in that situation. Um, mm. so I am really hopeful and, um, excited for you. And I want to encourage you to, you know, take that leap of faith and and finally do that and, and maybe incorporate more of you into that um i i love books i i have they're all around me i don't think they're dead at all but you could do an audio book you got a good voice for it you got a radio voice so um whatever way it shows up but um it, it you know if that's your edge mm-hmm. go for it and um maybe i'll find mine in these coming months well, I definitely have had that insight for sure. Um, either putting it as like, I guess, an intro, an epilogue, um, because as I shared, I mean, it, if if I even wrote, tried to write this eight years ago, it probably would be a um, kind of a a lot more angry uh, dissertation, <laughs> right? And because that was sort of um, that was sort of where like I still a lot of angst was coming out of, like like I had my own truths. And like what I saw was the antithesis. It was like, wow, why are people this anger? Why are people believing this? Why are they doing this? It's like, look at all this evidence. And um, it's just a more mature understanding and recognizing now that what I write will come from that space of um, like just welcoming critique and criticism and recognizing that even what I'm writing isn't necessarily quote, absolute truth, right? It's the point was it's triggering conversation. And, and that, and that really is what kind of the scientific method is about. It's, it's starting with an hypothesis and then looking to investigate and finding sort of the answers and the truths out of experimentation and, and not sort of as, as the, is it a proverb? I don't know. Throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, I saying, love that one. I use it all the time. Yeah, <laughs> don't throw which, the baby out with the bathwater. Absolutely, yeah. and that's and that's sort of what's happening now, even with nutrition and what we're currently dealing with. We're seeing it with vitamin C. Just the fact that you, you start with the words "vite" and people immediately go, oh, "You're a nut. You're a crazy." We don't want to talk about vitamins. It's like what well, vitamins have no place in any of this. And it's like, well, that's funny because if you actually open up, you know, the medical journals. We have a plethora of data around what ascorbic acid, ascorbic acid um, can do for uh, severe chronic disease. And so to throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater is really doing a society a disservice when we actually now have, quote, the scientific evidence to back up what initially was just sort of um, empirical understandings about life. And 
Yeah. So, so what we're talking about here is really just, it's, it's doing both. It's this mind body component is crucial. And it's also not denying the fact that we still live in this meat suit and these meat suits need support, physical, physiologic support. Um, it's amazing what can be accomplished. I mean, we look at, um, 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 uh, Joe Dispenza's healing. No, Stephen, uh, Stephen Hawking, for example, oh, who unfortunately yeah. just recently passed away. But what, what he's, I mean, he, he lived way beyond the expectations of how long his body should have been around for. And all he had left was his mind. But the power of him being present to what was available in his mind, despite the fact that his physical organism had failed so completely, um, was, is incredible. And, and, and we have so many examples of that possibility of, of being able to override um, the physiology despite the, the external influences of what we've been bombarding our, our physical selves with. That's right. So, and how much things like uh, love and companionship um, <clears throat> can do in, in the healing process. And I mean, just think about it now you have over, you know, 13 years of anecdotes from, you know, Burning Man and, and, and yeah. <laughs> uh, all your volunteer music festivals and, and uh, events that, you know, you could possibly draw from. I, I think the timing is always perfect. And wh whoever your friend was that encouraged you to do the live video, I, I, th I thank him or her. Um, and just, yeah, it's just been a blessing having you here. Um, I've, I've broken my own rule of keeping it to an hour and that's totally okay. There was, there was lots to say. Um, I, I have one more question for you. And this was kind of mm -hmm. the burning question when I watched your video. So from the position of the human being as a whole self, you know, spiritual, mm -hmm. emotional, physical, mental, uh, you know, a whole being. How do you see the virus from the perspective of that as opposed to the virus from, as the virus being the focal point? How do you, can you elaborate on what it means to be a whole being looking at this external thing. Hmm. Well, initially, I guess from a, from a medical perspective, Western or allopathic medicine has always typically been um, kind of a, a disease-specific approach. Um, and that's really ever since uh, the advent of like um, the identification of um, antibiotic therapy and recognizing that we can instance to target the disease. And in this case, antiviral treatments, um, viruses actually are one of the most difficult. We don't really don't have a lot of treatments mm -hmm. um, and it really, Last couple of decades that we've identified uh, antiviral medicines. Um, we've had antibiotics, but those don't work with viruses. But medicine as a whole always sort of um, drug targeting uh, the microbe versus, and it would really ignore the host. And 
And so it, most of the research was about trying to find a substance that would go after, um, again, the, the offending um, agent that is causing destruction. And um, uh, another colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Vasquez, who, who's a prolific um, uh, author and a prolific learner, the guy's got actually three medical degrees. <laughs> so, um, you know, he currently uh, uh, quoted uh, an article in the in February of this year, and it was about it was, the article was called "Reducing Mortality from the 2019 NCOV uh, Host-Directed Therapy Should Be an Option," and it was sort of this groundbreaking, it was a radical idea in medicine of like thinking about the host and, and really what is it about the, the host, our organism that makes us more resilient? Like why some people fail and die rapidly, and why do other people become asymptomatic carriers? They can be infected with the virus and literally show no, sim no signs and symptoms. And, and that had always and continues to be sort of this um, kind of a more amorphous concept of like, well, where do you start? Like what, how do we really understand it? And, you know, it's really in the science, it starts with the question of, then why, like, who, who is more resilient? Um, and can we start investigating that? And the challenge becomes, you know, trying not to make correlations, um, and saying, well, um, mm. because it's, it's not necessarily causation but it's a starting point. And so on the physical level, you know, we can investigate and say, oh, we know, we know when people are, have deficiencies in vitamin C and deficiencies in A and, and D and zinc and selenium, right? We can start to identify. There's theories that we know that children have way more melatonin. Um, melatonin uh, levels, um, melatonin, the substance, the hormone is known uh, to, to actually modulate one of the main, uh, what are called inflammasomes uh, that's created by this virus. Uh, all of our cells produce these inflammasomes. Um, and the one specifically that gets fired up is called NLRP3. Um, melatonin is, was actually found to reduce that. So one of the theories is children are more resilient because they have way higher levels of melatonin. So you can't immediately say, oh, melatonin will sort of cure or treat this disease. But no understanding the physiology, we can we can say, would it be um, would it be potentially scientifically prudent um, to begin taking melatonin? Well, melatonin is relatively safe. We don't know the answer of would it help, but rather than watchful waiting and just sort of seeing what would happen, it's like why don't we be proactive? Make sure that we are. Uh, protected that we have enough uh, nutrients to make ourselves more resilient so that if we we do become infected that it softens the blow so to speak that we don't have as severe reactions to the illness um, so ultimately we can produce the antibodies and eventually uh, spread immunity basically um, it's sort of like back in the day with chickenpox right we used to have chickenpox parties and the reason you would do that Oh yeah, <laughs> to create immunity that your body would have the antibodies to this, and so you'd want to get infected. The difficulty here is, in an ideal world, yes, it would be great if everybody had the antibodies, but that meant getting sick. Or, as we're starting to learn, if we have enough uh, uh, antibody-rich plasma, and you can infuse that plasma from someone who has already had it, 
we can potentially start inoculating. Um, so it really goes back to kind of host defense. Um, mm. And if you go really far back, this was really arguments that started with um, uh, Louis Pasteur and um, um, I can't help you. Oh my goodness! I know. <laughs> it's I'm okay. Just, uh, I wish It'll I come. When yeah, the other go. the other researcher, which is um, uh, it was an old saying that the microbe is nothing; the the milieu is everything, and the milieu uh, basically meant um, how is how is the underlying organism? How is the health of the physiology of the organism? How resilient is it? So the microbe is is literally nothing if your milieu is robust and strong, and so what is it about that person who gets infected and gets through it with like just the sniffle versus the person who gets infected, a 30-year-old, a 70-year-old who ends up in intensive care, who barely makes it out of intensive care and now is actually suffering all the sequelae, the, the follow-up effects of like now they've got heart disease because we now know the virus can actually cause a lot of fibrotic damage uh, to both the lungs, the heart, the digestive system. Um, what is it about those individuals? And really, that's kind of those bigger questions to investigate and not just put all of our energy into just trying to find uh, the one microbe, because then really, what are we doing? Are we really changing as a culture? Are we really looking um, to evolve um, with the knowledge that we have about what it takes to be healthy? Or, or were we just leaving it up to chance and saying, well, you know, there's going to be a magic bullet. We're always just waiting for that magic bullet. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, a lot of our magic bullets um, have turned out to cause a whole nother set of problems. Like obviously we now know that, you know, the, the flagrant use of antibiotics has caused a huge problem with like antibiotic resistant microbes. And now we're left with going like, okay, what do we do with these superbugs that we in essence created? Um, through our investigations of trying to target uh, just the microbe versus fully trying to understand um, the health of the, the organism itself. And I think that's a lot of what naturopathic medicine has to contribute. You know, allopathic or Western medicine has always sort of been a path pathologic approach, right? Which is, this is a disease state. We learn everything from the disease model. So we investigate various interventions like surgery or drugs to treat the disease state. Um, and again, this is not a discussion of right or wrong or bashing right. one approach versus yeah. the other. Because yeah. um, there are cases where I had guys come in wanting to do therapies for erectile dysfunction. And when I did a physical exam, I would investigate their genitals and be like, that's suspicious. That to me looks like cancer. Mm -hmm. And then we went and get a biopsy. And sure enough, this guy was walking around for years and had a squamous cell cancer on, it, on his genitals and had no idea. He just thought it was a beauty mark. And the cure for that was surgery and it's going it. and getting yeah. the thing cut off. Right. So like, there's not being like an opposing one way of doing things. It's recognizing when something needs to be done. Needs to be addressed. And yeah. for me, naturopathic medicine has always been about approaching from physiology, which is we understand what the cells need to function, to be healthy. Um, so if we use interventions and therapies to support physiology, many disease states will begin to auto-correct themselves because you are supporting healthy physiology. But in some situations when the disease is so virulent or the pathology has gotten so severe, you many times need to remove or cut out large swaths of the disease to allow the host to actually survive and to begin healing. And, um, 
it, it becomes kind of a double-edged sword with medications, like you said, with Prozac. You know, in some situations, when someone uh, is in a situation where they're potentially going to harm themselves uh, or others, these medicines can help sort of uh, quiet down those moments, create stability, and then hopefully we begin now looking into what are ways to actually get to the root cause of what's causing this, the, the instability rather than use the drug. Cause ultimately we know that drugs are going to start muting um, mm -hmm. your true self. And um, it, it becomes that much more harder to really go inward and tap into um, who we are as a person when um, we have such a strong chemical override uh, of the system. But there's definitely a time and place for all of these things. Um, so I'm not quite sure if that completely answers your question. Or it was it... brilliant, especially, okay. uh, well, yeah, all of it. No, I so appreciate that. So uh, I'm, I would say, I would put a, not to put a label on myself, but I, I feel like a very deeply spiritual person. And in terms of healing, um, you know, my husband and kids and I, we pray every night, sometimes for the world as a whole. Sometimes we will say that the phrase for anybody in the world who needs it, because we don't always know. Sometimes it'll be specifically for a person or a family. There's been global meditations occurring. There has been uh, drum groups across North America. There have been um, jingle dancers. Um, doing really, really, really good work. Um, uh, in Canada, one of my favorite uh, musicians, Jan Arden, she's been doing live concerts. I mean, so many people are giving their gifts and with the intention of healing. For me, it's uh, prayer and, and holding space for people to share their particular gifts um sometimes it's it's writing sometimes it's poetry uh specifically um and speaking my truth for mm -hmm. for the hope that there will be some uh, resonance for someone to identify a part in themselves that's been unseen um i want to leave off with the uh offer what is it that you are gifting the world for the for the healing in this time hmm. well hopefully the the last hour or so of us having this conversation um that what we've shared um will have some impact um Again, sometimes things come out of me. I don't even realize they come out of my mouth until I go back and hear them. It's like, ooh, did I say that? Um, so at this point, there might have been something I shared in the last hour that was like, ooh, I really like that. I don't even hear myself saying it. It just sort of comes out because of your prompt. Um, what I can share is doing your best to not feed into a state of fear um it's if the fear is the thing you suspect that the fear is coming on is to literally step into it and and don't do um what's called spiritual bypassing which is a, a tendency to use kind of spiritual ideas or practices to to sidestep 
uh, or avoid facing unresolved kind of emotional issues or psychological wounds um, and, and really kind of face them head on. Um, maybe try to experiment with um, something new and different that um, confronts you. Like uh, meditation is incredibly confronting for some people. Um, many times from a religious standpoint, um, this idea of meditation being tied in with uh, potentially Buddhism or spirituality, and it doesn't relate to someone's religion, um, stepping into something that you may have questioned. And the idea is like, why are you questioning it? Is it your belief or is it a belief that was given to you growing up? And so now it's sort of questioning um, the, the why. Why do you think a certain way? Um, So maybe that's some gifts from, from, from the functional medicine, the physiologic standpoint, um, I would say if someone um, going the opposite direction, if someone knows hospitalists that are looking for more solutions, um, when it comes to this intravenous vitamin C, reach out. I'll have discussions with hospitalists about how to apply intravenous vitamin C and share with them uh, the research um, and and what happens when we infuse vitamin C intravenously uh, during acute respiratory distress syndromes and sepsis and how to reduce uh, mortality rates by greater than 50% simply by infusing uh, an antioxidant while someone is being ventilated. Um, that's all crucial information. And so mm -hmm. if I can have those conversations with hospitalists who are doing this kind of work, because again, it's not stuff that I do. I don't work in a hospital. Um, I don't do intensive care. And, um, but I have, I have the knowledge, I have the research to be able to explain it and the rationale behind why you would do it. And frankly, the safety behind being able to add it. Um, that's something I, I can also help um, contribute to because clearly people would want everything done possibly if you or a family member is in the hospital. Um, you know, the last thing you'd want, I mean, that is one of the most loneliest places to have mm -hmm. to pass where no one can see you. There's no visitors. You can't even stand in front of a, a window and watch. Um, uh, I, I can't even imagine the thousands of people. I mean, if anything, what's going to happen now is, I mean, the mental health crisis that is now looming in the, in our world, both from uh, providers on the front line, um, having to deal with uh, this amount of death and suffering to um the mental health crisis of people literally being home alone, uh, self-quarantining and, and confronting their own darkness. Um, I think, I think really it beyond just simple nutrition and supplements, we need to have a bigger, broader discussion about interventions around mental health and ultimately what's going to be happening starting now and in the future and how we manage mental health. So couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> Thanks, John. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for the listeners, um, there'll be, uh, if this is okay with you, an ability for people to connect with you if, if you're, uh, yeah. yeah. So we'll, we'll put your email in there and um, a more specific bio that has words that I didn't want to stumble on earlier. <laughs> um, yeah. I know there, for me personally, what came up in the last half of it was uh, a little nudge to go and donate blood uh, myself. Um, now you still have to go through the whole process each time you go to discuss health concerns and things like that. So um, there is that layer um, and, and doing it at a time that is 
um, you know, challenging. Um, but I know that there's, I, I've been a blood donor for years. Um, mm -hmm. And so I feel in really good health right now overall. And so it, it might be something I could actually contribute um, personally. Well, what I could share is, uh, again, a little health, a little health anecdote is, is because I treat mostly men, um, we have the published evidence that, that men, I, re I encourage uh, my guys to donate blood at least twice a year. Typically, the best way to remember is when we change our clocks. Um, mm. So every six months, donate blood, you change your batteries and your smoke detectors, and you change your clocks, and you go donate blood. And the men who donate regularly have reduced morbidity and mortality, basically meaning you have reduced um, disease processes and reduced uh, death. Um, so you live longer with less illness when you contribute blood. And so um, we have that evidence, we have that knowledge. And so you're doing good for yourself and you're doing good mm -hmm. for the population uh, when you donate. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. All right, John, it has been an honor. We're going to sign off here and to the listeners and to you and your, your fiance and your housemates and your loved ones. Um, lots of love. Oh, so, so happy to be able to talk about vitamins for an hour and a half. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. <laughs> Thank Vitamin you so C much. for connection. That's right. And yes. yeah, as always, the last thing I say is uh, make sure to stay connected. Thanks. Thanks so much. <laughs>